Welcome to part two of ARDS Management. I'm Ricky Bell and I'm talking today to Dr. Caroline Sampson, ECMO and Intensive Care Consultant. We've built on the previous case of a 50-year-old with ARDS due to pneumonia who's now reached the point of intubation. Kaz, I'd like to ask you a little about lung protective ventilation. Do you think we should be doing lung protective ventilation for all comers to intensive care? Or is it just reserved for those with a confirmed diagnosis of ARDS? I would go further, Ricky. I say I would say we should do lung protective ventilation for everyone going on a ventilator. Um, I I think that um, it is more important and critical to your patient the more um, of a lung injury they have when they go onto a ventilator. Um, but I think that actually anyone who we ventilate in theatre should ideally have a tired volume that is between six and eight mils per kilo of their ideal body weight and I think ideal body weight is really important as our patients get bigger uh, we've all seen the patients with the very high BMIs in CT scan and their lungs have not increased in size with their with their BMI their lungs are still the size that they should be for that patient's height so I think that anyone who's got completely normal lungs who's been ventilated in theatre should ideally have a tidal volume somewhere between six and eight have a sensible amount of peak between probably five and ten depending how big the patient is and we should sort of you know limit those uh, that respiratory rate to ideally sort of 30 or less that there is a lot of the ARDS studies are French I don't know why the French particularly have lots of ARDS or whether they particularly like studying it but a lot of the, the studies that that we use are French and actually the French have done a study looking at patients being ventilated in theatre who were coming in for sort of GI problems that needed laparotomies or laparoscopies and they basically ventilated them either using the sort of lung protective parameters that we're very well versed with in ICU or basically whatever the anaesthetist wanted and to be honest if you do read the uh, the control group some of their anaesthetists picked some very odd vent settings for their patients to be honest but but there you go and, and again you know that it was a, a reasonable size sample size and you couldn't tell a difference in mortality and you wouldn't expect that these are people who've got normal lungs who were having ventilation for you know an hour or two for their laparotomy but in the group who were lung protectively ventilated Less of them got post-op pneumonia, less of them needed to go to ICU or HDU for their lungs, less of them needed non-invasive support post-op, and less of them needed invasive ventilation in that two weeks post-op. So even in people who have normal lungs, we can protect them. So yes, I would say that anyone, all comers should have lung protective ventilation. I'm not sure whether that necessarily means strictly sticking to six mils per kilo of ideal body weight for their tidal volumes. I think for some people, certainly the non-ARDS group, you can have a bit more than that. I think it's more about limiting pressures, but I wouldn't, ideally I wouldn't ever go above eight if I could avoid it. So essentially what you're trying to do when you're ventilating your patient with ARDS, which is sort of what the principles of looking after anyone in ICU is no further harm. And these patients already have a lung injury, whether that's a direct one from their pneumonia or whether that's indirect from their trauma or their pancreatitis. And so their lungs are vulnerable, are vulnerable to further damage. And the sorts of ways that, that they can get further damaged in particularly in critical care is either, for example, from the ventilator or from, for example, secondary infections. And both of those things will prolong the ALDS and potentially worsen the outcomes for the patient may increase the sort of longer term problems they have or the degree of fibrosis they get from their ARDS. The, the ways in which ventilators, I mean, ventilators are totally unphysiological if you think about how the way you normally breathe and then you think about what we do with a ventilator. 
there are four ways in which the ventilator essentially can damage your lungs. You can give too high a volume, so you over distend some of your alveoli. You can give too high pressure. You can cause what we call atelect trauma, where the um, alveoli open and close. Your alveoli just want to stay open, to be honest, but if they're cyclically opening and closing. And then the, the fourth way is called biotrauma. And that's basically because if your alveoli are clicking open and shut, they are chucking out more of those nasty inflammatory cytokines. And actually that just perpetuates the whole thing. The lung protective measures that we go for are minimising what we call plateau pressure to less than 35. I suspect that most of us actually, because plateau pressure is measured by our ventilators and isn't something that we set, most of us probably limit our peak pressure because we know that the plateau will be less than the peak. That's simple physics. Um, so most of us limit our peak pressure to 30 to 35 centimetres of water because we know that that should be within the safe parameters. Interestingly, the original trial, the ARDSnet trial, which is now more than two decades old, which makes me feel old because it was published in 2000, wasn't looking at tidal volumes at all. It was actually looking at pressures. They compared a plateau pressure of 50 to a plateau pressure of 30. And as a sort of secondary outcome, that dropped the tidal volume from about 10 mils per kilo, which was normal at the time, to six mils per kilo. And that's where this six mils per kilo tidal volume of ideal body weight, not of actual body weight, comes from. And it's the other really important thing to remember, particularly about ARDS, is in the days when we could just do chest x-rays, we thought it was quite a homogeneous illness because you, you do a film and it looks quite white throughout all of the lung fields and it looks like the whole of the lung is affected in the same way and then we started trotting these patients through CT scanners and you can see that actually that's not the case at all you've often got um, a gravity dependent gradient where you have normal lung in the most um, it was the most affected lung is at the bases or the posterior part of the of the lungs for patients who are lying on their backs um, and the most normal or least effective bit is um, either anteriorly or at the top of your lungs um, and actually what you're trying to do when you're minimizing further damage from your ventilator is not only trying to minimize the bit that is most badly affected by the ARDS but you're actually trying to protect the normal bit of lung and there's quite a lot of um, sort of post-ARDS uh, imaging that's been done in patients one to two years down the line and actually the the worst bit of damage to the fibrosis that is seen is not in the bit of lung that's badly affected by the ARDS it's in the quote-unquote normal bit of lung that we're trying to protect so that is probably secondary to us trying to ventilate them to normal numbers and so normal you know, sort of levels of oxygen and CO2 in their blood that's compatible with life so actually that that's where the lung protective ventilation comes from and people talk about the concept of baby lung and I think the easiest way to think about that is if you have ARDS, the proportion of normal lung gets smaller depending on the severity of the ARDS. So if you've got someone who's got really bad ARDS, they might only have tiny baby lungs in there that are actually normal. So what you want to do is protect those, those bits of lung when you're ventilating your patients. The ideal body weight calculation actually tidal volume to ideal body weight, six mils per kilo, actually didn't come from people picking the tidal volumes, but it actually came from them trying to limit the top pressures. And we sort of look back on that study and we think, God, you know, they were ventilating people with 12 mils per kilo of, of tidal volume, ideal body weight and top pressures of 50. But actually that was, that was accepted at the time as being a way to keep your lungs recruited. So until, and it just shows how important it is to do the trials. So that, that was accepted at the time, you used big tidal volumes, you didn't really use that much PEEP, um, and that was to keep the alveoli recruited. And now we know that actually, I think with most things in medicine, 
uh, certainly in intensive care, is kind of less is more. And actually, we don't need to, to aim for normality and we need to minimise harm. Let's say this patient is now on the ventilator, but FiO2 is going up and you're struggling with oxygenation. Are there any strategies you would employ to help improve this? So there's a few steps that we would take for the the patient who's hypoxic. And going along with our trying to minimise any further harm from our treatment, so we're talking about limiting the volume, limiting the pressure, and not having too high respiratory rates on the ventilator, we think that very high levels of oxygen can cause damage to the lungs. And again, a lot of that's based on sort of animal studies and studies in barometric pressure chambers, where actually if you give animals 100% oxygen to breathe or more than that, because you put them in barometric chambers, then their lungs, not only their trachea, so not only their airways, but their, their lungs are damaged quite quickly. So we like to try and keep the FiO2 on our ventilator at 60% or less. There are a few things that you can try. So um, the first one is uh, considering whether you want to increase the PEEP of the patient. Now, the whole aim of PEEP is, um, I I like to think about, going back to the sort of baby lung concept, I like to think about the three zones in ARDS, um, which I think when you've had a look at a CT scan of a patient, you can sort of understand a bit better. Let's let's, um, theoretically say our patient is standing up because it's a bit easier to talk about. So you've got the bottom bit of lung, which is, dense is often densely consolidated on the CT scan all those alveoli are probably collapsed um it's the sort of most it will be the, the most densely consolidated bit and actually most of those alveoli are basically lost to us at the moment you know no amount of pressure is going to open them up and keep them open they're all just collapsed you've then got the top bit of lung which is the normal bit and actually those alveoli are quite happy at the moment and they're participating mainly in the gas exchange and you want to protect them. That's why you don't want to give too high volumes because it's all going to be preferentially going to that normal bit of lung because the, the bottom bit of lung we might as well write off for the time being. And then you've got a bit in the middle and these are slightly sticky alveoli. Some of them will be collapsed. Some of them will be open. Some of them will be opening and closing. And that potentially recruitable bit of lung with a bit more pressure, you might be able to open them up, but then you would want to splint them open with um, a higher level of PEEP. And you'll have to excuse me because I think about these things in quite a simple way, but this is how I work it out in my head. So for those middle bits of lung, obviously the more lung that you recruit that is recruitable, then you have more alveoli to participate in gas exchange and your patient's oxygenation CO2 should get better. This is kind of a simplistic way of thinking about it because there's lots of other factors in, in play, but it's, it's, it's a nice way to think about it. So for those alveoli in the middle, so that potentially recruitable lung, they might benefit from an increase in PEEP. Again, if you look at the studies on ARDS, there is no magic study that tells us what level of PEEP to pick, unfortunately, to pick for our patients. There's lots of different ways of titrating it. You know, there's kind of tables like they, they use in the odds net where basically the sicker you were, the more PEEP you would need. And that makes sense because you know, that there'll be less recruitable alveoli and the ones that you have will be harder to open and harder to stay open. But there's lots of clever people who will tell you their their method of of choosing PEEP. Um, I personally um, choose my PEEP looking at my patient. So if I'm ventilating a patient who's got, who's going off to sleep because they're hypoxic, I would generally pick, I'd start at a PEEP of 10 and I would probably go up to about 15, but I rarely go above that, to be honest. Um, And I know that probably in the UK, we don't go much higher than that we certainly don't go above 20 whereas in Europe actually they quite often go up into the 20s and 
if a patient is, I put them off to sleep with a PEEP of 10 and they are hypoxic, I would go up just in, in steps of two and just see what happens to their SATs. But making sure that that top pressure is limited at somewhere between 30 and 35. Obviously, if you've got a very big patient, everything needs to be a bit higher because you're actually having to overcome the weight of the chest wall instead as, as well. So you, you've got your patient, you know, they're in 75, 80%. You're on, say, you know, a sensible amount of PEEP, sort of 12. And, and obviously PEEP can also affect our right hearts and it can affect their cardiovascular status. So all those things you need to watch for at the same time. Say they're tolerating that. The next thing I would do is prone the patient. And that is, of all of the things we do in ARDS, the one that is the most evidence-based and also probably the cheapest. Um, although arguably having you know, five nurses to, to help you turn a patient or even more than that at, at three o'clock in the morning that takes them away from four other patients is maybe not as cheap. But yeah, pr proning is, is really good evidence behind it. And that would be definitely the next thing that I would try. I mean, I, I would say that if your patient is, uh, is intubated for hypoxia, you've kind of gone up from 10 to 12, maybe 14 at the most over an hour or two, things aren't getting better, I would turn them. And my, my um, criteria for turning a patient prone is if they need more than 60% or more from the ventilator to achieve a PaO2 of eight or above, which is about the SATs of 89, 90 and above. I think that there are many reasons why, why proning works and it's, you know, they're not just from an oxygenation point of view. And uh, sometimes that'll also help um, a, a failing RV, which we know also is a problem in, in ARDS. But obviously, to every time we turn a patient, we do risk pulling things out or, um, you know, sort of losing a tube or losing lines. I think that the more you do it, the less that becomes a problem. So I think it's all about practicing. And I suspect we're all pretty well practiced with proning patients over the last um, two years, unfortunately. But actually, uh, that, that would be, that's generally my trigger. So if a patient needs 60% or more from the ventilator to get a PO2 of eight or above, and ideally prone them at a time when you have all the team around. I always sort of say, you know, if you've got somebody that you've turned at three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, or say, say six o'clock in the afternoon, and they're due to be turned back in the middle of the night, just leave them on their front until the cavalry arrives at, you know, at 8 a.m. There have been patients who've had really quite prolonged periods in prone position that we've got used to over the last couple of years, you know, 20 hours, maybe even 24 hours, maybe even longer than that. And as long as that you're keeping sort of close, a close eye on pressure areas and you're lifting the limbs and the head up every hour, um, you know, just, just gently off the bed, you don't actually have to turn it, then then that is something that can be done safely. So I would always, uh, my, my rule of thumb is more than 60% to get a PO2 of eight or above or SATs of 88-ish above. Ideally turn them somewhere between four and six in the afternoon when you're doing an afternoon round with all the team around and then turn them back at sort of nine o'clock in the morning or you know sort of after the morning round. Train everyone in your unit to be able to do it. This is not a nursing or a doctor thing. This is a nursing, doctor, physio, OT, pharmacist, HCA, everyone else who's around, you know, kind of hands on deck thing. And the more people that do it, the more people that are familiar with it. And I think that there is much greater acceptance of A, the fact that it works and B, the fact that it can be done safely if it's something that you maintain your skills in as a team. Um, are there any alternatives if there is a reason the patient is unable to prone or the team are unfamiliar with proning? 
a sort of halfway house, particularly for a patient that, like we were talking about, so the 50-year-olds with the pneumonia, who's presumably got a lobar pneumonia. So although ARDS will affect the whole of the lung fields, he's probably got one lung that's worse than the other. There are some patients that you can't prone, either because of their size or because they've, you know, open abdomens, open chests, recent laparotomies, recent sternotomies. You know, there are patients who've got balloon pumps in. There are patients who you cannot prone, um, or it's it's a relatively strong contraindication to prone and actually if you've got one lung that's worse than the other if you put the good lung down so if you put them in true lateral position that can sometimes sort of improve oxygenation to buy time and and certainly that's something as a registrar at four o'clock in the morning where you've got an hypoxic patient you've maybe not got you know you're in a small ICU actually maybe you haven't got staff that are particularly familiar with proning patients or you're not that familiar with doing it that's always something that you can try because everyone will be happy putting the patient on their side and I don't just mean kind of one pillow underneath I mean trying to get them sort of true lateral and that that can be a nice sort of holding measure and that can improve the numbers enough to allow you to lung protectively ventilate that patient until maybe more of the team or more experienced team members are available to come give you a hand. Moving on from hypoxia what about hypercapnia? What strategies are there for managing hypercapnia in RDS? And also what pH or CO2 values would get you concerned? CO2 rise is often a, a slightly later sign in ARDS. And because it initially hypoxia usually it predominates. But obviously, once you're starting, once your CO2 is starting to rise, that tells you that your compliance is worsening. And you will you will never be as good at ventilating a patient as they are self-ventilating. So if you have, especially a young patient who's got quite a lot of reserve, who's sitting there, you know, on, on his high flow nasal oxygen with a respiratory rate in the mid thirties, as soon as you put him off to sleep, his CO2 will start to go up because we won't set the ventilator to, to 38 or whatever it was he was breathing spontaneously before. And it won't be as efficient because, you know, obviously nature will ventilate our lungs much better than, than we ever can with the machine. As to what degree of hypercapnia we should allow, again, that depends a little bit on the patient, but almost all patients, and it's more pH related than CO2 related, almost all patients in my experience will tolerate a pH of 7.2 and above. You might get the odd patient in whom that um, upsets them cardiovascularly and they get quite tachycardic or vasodilated with that. All patients um, who've got other pathology that is almost their primary problem, such as someone with a head injury, you wouldn't necessarily want their CO2 to rise. But that's quite a you know, sort of specialist uh, group there. Again, aiming for normal levels will just mean us turning up all of those knobs on the ventilator. So giving them higher pressures, giving them higher rates, giving them higher oxygen than maybe they need. And I suspect that permissive hypercapnia, I don't really mind what your CO2 is, because also young people's kidneys will compensate for their CO2 reasonably quickly. I don't really mind what your CO2 is as long as your pH is greater than 7.2 accepting those special circumstances such as um, you know raising cranial pressure where actually co2 will make a massive difference to their could make a massive difference to their neurological outcome the caveat as well to that maybe is the patients who've got right ventricular dysfunction secondary to their ARDS and they may not tolerate a higher co2 or a lower ph as well and in them i would see whether 7.25 is acceptable to them there's probably an argument to say some patients will actually tolerate a pH lower than that. You know, some patients will tolerate a pH of 7.1 to 7.2. 
And certainly I suspect that we have all been surprised by um, some of the gas results in some of our COVID patients who've then gone on to recover, you know, with actually their levels of hypoxia that they will tolerate and the levels of potentially of hypercapnia, although that's been less of an issue. Doesn't mean that that's something we should aim for. But I suspect, again, with as with all ICU, less is more. And I think that the further on we get, the we realise that we don't have to aim for normal figures in almost anything, you know, kind of whether that's your blood pressure, your oxygen levels, your CO2 levels, your pH, and that humans have evolved to adapt to quite extremes of oxygenation and, and sort of acidosis. And actually is us striving for normality going to cause more harm than good, particularly when we're thinking about, you know, kind of overventilating somebody. If their CO2 is rising, that might be a later stage of ARDS that might sort of indicate much stiffer lungs, potentially some early fibrosis. And at that point, they're really fragile and actually higher pressures might potentially, um, you know, kind of risk like we were talking about before, you know, barotrauma, pneumothoraces, things like that. Chasing a normal CO2 can cause harm to these patients. But what about oxygenation targets? We sort of relaxed our PaO2 sort of um, targets a bit in the last couple of years, and we've accepted patients who've had PaO2s in the sevens, especially if it's been a slow climb down, which, you know, kind of I suspect it would be normal if you were altitude. And actually, if the other indices, so if you're, you know, if, if you don't have signs of cellular, obvious signs of cellular hypoxia, you know, is that patient's lactate okay? Are they peeing? Obviously, if they're sedated, you wouldn't know. But if they're awake enough, are they, are they you know, is their brain working? Actually, that for that patient at that point is probably sufficient. And I think that's what we, we don't know where our cutoff is. I think kind of the next conversations we will be having is, Yes, I think we've all accepted that permissive hypercapnia to minimise further harm from um, maybe turning up those dials on your ventilator, just saying, actually, we can accept that with their pH of 7.2. I suspect the next conversation we'll be having in the next few years is permissive hypoxia, but we're not quite there yet, or hypoxemia. I want to ask you about different ventilator modes, uh, in particular, airway pressure release or APRV. Are there any advantages in managing patients with ARDS of using APRV as a mode of ventilation? So APRV is, I think, an interesting mode. I call it the Marmite, the ventilatory modes, because I think people either love it or hate it. Whereas I quite like Marmite sometimes and kind of feel the same way about APRV. I think the most important thing when you're thinking about what ventilator mode you're picking for your patient is, is actually what ventilator mode do I know most about? And probably even more importantly, what ventilator mode do the nurses working in the unit have the most experience and are most familiar with? Because that will always be your safest ventilator mode. And we all know, particularly when we're trainees, we'll rotate down around different places. Some places will use pressure control, some places will use volume control, some places will vary on that depending on the patient's pathology. I think the most important thing when we're thinking about APRV is introducing it at three o'clock in the morning with your sickest patient with a um, you know sort of bedside nurse who doesn't know what it is and doesn't know how to wean it is not a good idea I think one of the most important things about APRV is it has to be ideally it's something that all of the consultants that that work in the unit agree as to its merits because otherwise you'll end up chopping and changing potentially between ventilator modes depending who's on and that probably isn't beneficial for the patient the idea of APRV kind of goes back to our poor little alveoli in the middle of our ARDS lungs that are potentially recruitable uh, with a little bit more pressure. And if you can open them up and keep them open with a bit more peep, 
you can use them, you can recruit them, you can use them for gas exchange. It is evidence light. <laughs> I don't think it's evidence free. Um, and I think we've used it quite a lot. And I suspect a lot more places have used it in the last year or two that maybe have used it before. I personally think it can be quite a useful mode in hypoxic patients. I think it is particularly it will work in those who have recruitable lung. So if there is no recruitable lung, I don't think it will work. But I think in most patients, there is some recruitable lungs. There's some of those alveoli in the middle that we can, we can use with a bit more pressure. There has been no study to date that I know of that shown that it improves mortality in ARDS. There has been a small study that shows it's improved, um, a small Chinese study, but I think it's only 140 people. Um, so it's not a big study that showed that it improved some really important patient centre outcomes, such as whether you need a trachea, whether you get off ventilator. And there was a numerical difference in mortality, but it didn't quite reach significance. So there isn't good evidence behind it. However, it is quite a useful, I think it's a useful tool to have in your armament to use for your hypoxic patients. But I think what's really important about APRV is you don't use it instead of proning. You should always prone first because that is something that has a mortality benefit that has been demonstrated in ARDS. And I think APRV is a useful tool as long as it's a unit that are happy with that and that could be you know a quality improvement project where you introduce it into a unit that you're in that's that's fine i think the fact that most of the ventilators that we use in um in, in our icu practice have it as a mode makes it a lot safer i think anything where you're dusting off a machine that you don't use very often for your sickest pa hypoxic patient at four o'clock in the morning is a really bad idea and i'm talking about the oscillator <laughs> as an example um but aprv isn't a different machine for most of us it is just a different button on the ventilator so i think it definitely has a role but i think it has to be something that is that if you are going to introduce it, you have to make sure that your nursing staff are happy with it, are familiar with it, at, or you embed that teaching to, you know, so, to make sure that that information is available to all of the staff who can look after that patient. So let's say you're ventilating this patient, it's five days down the line, things have not got worse, but not made an improvement. Is there any point where you would consider steroids? So steroids is another contentious issue. Um, in ARDS. Um, it, it, I think it's partly because um, we, we like ARDS uh, in ICU because we know that, that if you have ARDS generally you are managed in ICU so we feel like we have kind of ownership over that as a, a disease but it's, it's not a disease it's a syndrome because there's so many different things that can cause it actually what we lump together as ARDS is probably quite different things so the sort of ARDS quote unquote, you get with pancreatitis is probably quite different to the one you get with your pneumococcal pneumonia. And yet for ease, we sort of lump them all in together. So, and I think that, you know, again, steroids, a bit like the fluid management, you know, a lot of the problems is inflammation in the lungs. It's the neutrophils chucking out those nasty inflammatory mediators and cytokines. And so it kind of makes sense to dampen down that dysre almost dysregulated immune response um, with something like steroids. When we're thinking about the sort of later stages of ARDS, because after that in the sort of initial inflammatory stage where you get that flooding of the alveoli, where you get all those nasty inflammatory cytokines, you get the neutrophils in the wrong place, you get your platelets activated in the capillaries. After that, move into what we call a fibroproliferative stage, which is where the, the alveoli tries to repair itself and that the type two cells kind of start chucking out surfactant. Some of them turn into type one cells because they can differentiate. 
and you get a varying degree of alveoli that have completely healed themselves and alveoli that alveoli that have healed themselves by scarring and that's usually due to so you get this fibro the fibroblasts lay down collagen if you get lots of collagen then you'll get more scarring and again there's probably not only the severity of the initial insult but also genetic factors that you know sort of determine how much of your lung gets scarred and how much of it is it's is, is totally normal but steroids also have a role in dampening down that sort of fibro proliferation so theoretically they should have a role in dampening down the initial inflammation and then potentially have a role in dampening down the amount of repair that is dysregulated and turns into fibrosis as opposed to getting back to normal alveoli that can get on with gas exchange However, of course, you know, lots of things sound great in practice. And then the real world, it turns out that it's a lot more complicated than, than we expected. And there are no magic bullets. The, the, the sort of steroid controversy has gone on in ARDS for um, even longer than the um, uh, lung protective ventilation. In fact, the first trials came out in the late 90s. So that was even before that was while we were presumably ventilating people with 12 mils per kilo of ideal body weight but still. And um, there's a big name that, that you'll hear often attached to steroids in ARDS called Majuri. And he brought out this amazing trial in the end of the uh, 90s, but it was really, it was 25 patients. So it was really small. It showed some really good benefits of steroids in ARDS. But then one of the ARDSNETS trials a few years later actually looked retrospectively about patients who'd had steroids. And they didn't find a difference in the groups between those who'd had steroids got better and those who didn't. And actually they found that when steroids were started late, so 14 days into their ARDS diagnosis, actually those patients did worse, mainly because um, a lot of them got re-intubated. You know, we do worry with steroids, does that, that can increase critical illness, weakness, critical illness, you know, um, neuromyopathy. And also steroids dampen down our immune system. So they potentially, leave us more vulnerable to getting secondary infections so their steroids have you know it's, it's very much uh, have, have good points and have bad points personally what i do with steroids and ARDS is i would consider using them if you have unresolving ARDS but before that 14 week that sorry that 14 day cutoff um which usually means at about day 10 you know but by day 10 actually are they and, and you want to again make sure or try to avoid giving steroids in the acute sort of septic phase although you might use you know you might use stress dose steroids if they're on vasopressor support but you don't want to massively dampen down your patient's immune system if they're busy trying to fight off a bacterial pneumonia and I'm not talking about COVID here because we know that for example dexamethasone and severe COVID is is beneficial for probably all the all the same reasons that uh, that steroids may be beneficial in other causes of ARDS. So yes, I think if you are four or five days down the line, which is probably for this chap because he's been on the wall for three days, a week down the line, and his ARDS is either getting worse, but actually maybe you know you've had your antibiotics in, the inflammatory markers may be coming down, he may not be febrile anymore. So actually, what you're now dealing with is sort of the residual damage or the residual ongoing injury to the lung, rather than the actual acute infection. I would consider steroids at that point. I'm certainly not experienced in the use of steroids in my practice, but I find it really interesting to hear the theory behind the background of why they would potentially be beneficial for these ARDS patients. But because of the the ECMO patients who were sort of the the very severe end of ARDS, I do have quite a skewed ver- view of you know kind of the, the severity of the illness, and that's certainly something that we would try 
in our patients who were stuck on ECMO at sort of day 10, again, pre-COVID, because they got much longer length of stay, but um, pre-COVID when your normal length of time that you would need ECMO support would be somewhere between seven and 10 days. So if they're at a bit stuck at 10 days, we would try that. There are also, and again, these are rare, but there are steroid responsive conditions that uh, mimic a community acquired pneumonia that sometimes, I think sometimes we give steroids and the patients seem to respond miraculously to them. Sometimes it doesn't make, doesn't seem to make any difference at all. And sometimes I think maybe there's a, a slow response and you can sort of see maybe um, better compliance. And that would kind of go with the, they've dampened down the fibroblastic sort of fibroproliferative stage of ARDS. I think the ones that seem to get better within 24 hours of us starting probably just have a steroid responsive condition either causing or contributing to their ARDS that we just haven't diagnosed till that point. But that's my theory. Uh, that leads us quite nicely on to the next question. When do you think is the right time to contact ECMO for these ARDS patients? So I hope that probably everyone now has a much better idea of how to refer patients for ECMO and you know, and, and actually, you're not just necessarily referring your patient for, for ECMO, you're actually sort of referring for um, any advice that, that, that we could offer to try and almost prevent them getting to the stage where they need ECMO, because it is still in this country, at least, just used as a last-ditch attempt to save life when everything else has, has failed. I also would hope that people would feel that there's nothing wrong in referring your patients early that you're worried about particularly younger patients who who are um you know who are acutely ill in front of them sometimes for from our point of view actually just knowing that these patients are around even if they don't need us yet and we kind of go great that's lovely you know carry on managing let us know if they deteriorate it lets us know that 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 patient is there especially if you're geographically a little way away from us i mean the, the party line is that you refer for ecmo when you can't achieve safe gas exchange um, using lung protective ventilatory parameters. So essentially that means you cannot achieve a pH of 7.2, irrespective really of what your CO2 is, uh, within that lung protective parameters. So your plateau pressure of 35, probably 30 or less, respiratory rate of 30, and tidal volume of 6 mils per kilo, or potentially 8 mils per kilo at the very most or that you have uh, hypoxia that is resistant to full conventional management. And actually nowadays that, that would include having tried to prone your patient. And it may include um, a discussion with, with one of the, your, your local ECMO centre about you know, other things that we could try to try and make them better before we resort to ECMO. And we might talk about APRV, or we might talk about you know, sort of positioning the patient or we might advise trying a change of, of, of ventilation, you know, for example, a peak recruitment or something like that. Or potentially, like we talked about at the very beginning, taking a bit of fluid off to see if that helps. So there, there's a few things that, that we can do. And actually nowadays, because people are so au fait with ARDS after the last two years, almost always, actually all those things have been done before you refer the patient, <laughs> which is lovely. So, um, but, but again, party, so the, the party line is if they have a PF ratio of 10 or less, that's basically you cannot, you're in 100% and your PO2 is 10 or less kilopascals for six hours or more, despite all of these things, or a PF ratio of 6.6 or less for three hours. And so that is you're on 100% and your PO2 is in the high sixes. 
So for your acutely hypoxic patients, and, and to be honest, I'm very happy for you to refer a patient who you've just brought up, you've just intubated. And, and quite often those referrals that I, I get coming through are got this young patient, you know, suspect they would, or, or you know, got, got this patient, be respective of their age, think they would be a candidate for you, just intubated them, going to try X, Y, and Z. But at the moment, the first gas is a PO2 of seven on 100%. And that that's that's absolutely fine. So you know, kind of referring early is never a problem, even if what you might get back from us is that's great. Totally agree with what you're doing. Let us know. Keep us updated. Let us know if they deteriorate. Kaz, that's been that's been absolutely brilliant. Absolutely fascinating, actually. Are there any sort of final points you'd like to finish on? I think I think that the one thing that I would like us to have learned from the last two years is and I know I've talked about it a lot here, but is prone your patients. It works. If you don't get many patients who need proning, practice on each other. So when you do get that patient, and I really hope we don't lose that. Actually, we do that. We do that first and we do that routinely and we can do that safely. And we are happy to do that as a team. So I think I would yeah, just sign off with proning is the only thing that really improves mortality in ARDS when you look at the literature. So please try it. <laughs>